This is episode 206 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Heart on a Chip, with Dr. Christine Mummer. Hey everybody, we are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting the science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Christine Mummery, who's from Leiden University. She's on the podcast to talk about her research focusing on cardiovascular development and disease models that are based on human pluripotent stem cells. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news that's coming right up. Chat with one of the icons in cardiac biology. This is going to be a fun one. But first, we'd like to remind our listeners about Muscle Cell News, a free weekly newsletter provided by Stem Cell Science News. Muscle Cell News summarizes all the latest research news, jobs, and events in muscle cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Monday. So save time and keep current with Muscle Cell News. Subscribe for free at www.musclecellnews.com. All right, Arun, I'm leading off with what you could argue is not really a stem cell story, but I think the, the applications in the stem cell space are going to be tremendous, and it's just super cool. I love uh, imaging, and you know, there's nothing like beautiful imaging to really make clear uh, how complex these systems are and to humble you in the face of these biological questions that we aim to answer. Um, this is really a, a, a massive collaboration from many researchers. Uh, I, I'm going to cut it short. I'm going to say who is led by who is uh, Drs. Walsh, Tafaru, and Wagner. And this is multi-site too. Um, Dr. Walsh was coming from University College in London. Uh, Dr. Tafaru, as evidenced by that French sounding name, is at the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility in Grenoble, France. And Dr. Wagner hailing from Heidelberg, Germany. Also a lot of other researchers here. And what they're doing is really unpacking whole organs with some high resolution imaging. Um, and this is critical to understanding, you know, pictures worth a thousand words, these high level 3D images are worth millions. Um, and that adds up to insight. And it's really uh, about organs, which are like kind of this matryoshka doll of systems. You know, we see the whole organ but it's actually made up of little mini systems, right? The lung is a great example where you have the cells of, of the lung, but those are organized into alveoli. And then those alveoli, along with a lot of other structure um, and matrix there are organized into the greater organ. And every organ is like that. You know, you look at the kidney with the glomeruli and even organs like the heart, you have so many subtypes um, and systems in there to make that pump work. So yes, the organization um, the morphology and the interaction within those systems is really important. Understanding in 3D, it's really critical to uh, providing a, a basis for the biological function of these organs. Um, and, you know, by virtue of understanding biological function, also to understand, them, the, understand the behaviors in, in, you know, physiological, normal, healthy conditions, but really critically in disease systems. And that's what they aim to do here in this story. Um, but, you know, the state of the art, we're not quite there. Uh, mapping single cell level for entire human organs, we're not there. What we typically do is these hierarchical imaging systems, which is a fancy way of saying biopsy, essentially. 
We take a small piece, we do high resolution imaging on that, and then we take that as representative of the whole. But obviously that, that's not always representative of the whole. Um, and it would have tremendous value, you know, not just for diagnosis, but also insight to see the whole system at higher resolution. And we've made a lot of progress in recent years. Microscopy has made leaps and bounds. You know, we have light sheet microscopy, you have optical projection tomography, all kinds of other stuff. Um, and also it's combined with uh, kind of chemical means, optical clearing, where you can homogenize the refractive index in a biological tissue so that everything is essentially the refractive index of water and you can get deep imaging there. Um, and even with the whole adult human organs, this has been done, the clearing, uh, but it takes months for intact organs to be cleared and causes some morphological changes. And there's also high resolution magnetic resonance imaging, right? That's been used to try and capture this um, without all the clearing, right? And you can get there. You can achieve a hundred micron per voxel in an ex, ex vivo human brain that's been done, right? Just recently. Um, but in order to do that, it takes how long? A hundred hours for that brain to be imaged. And also it didn't really achieve the cellular resolution you'd like or that you can get from doing like actual microscopic imaging, even H and E, you know, the, the 100X microscope or even 20X uh, that you can get in microscopy. Single cell resolution, not quite there yet. All right, well, that brings us to the synchrotron X-ray tomography, right? Um, which uses X-rays and that's intrinsically better suited to imaging, you know, on these wide scales because they have deep penetration, short wavelength. And, you know, this, you're not gonna find this in any garden variety lab or even in the, the fancy um, imaging suites at these major academic centers. You only find it in one place where recently they got this high energy, which is six giga electron volts, I guess is what GEV stands for, it's big. It's fourth generation synchrotron source at the, uh, the uh, European Synchrotron Radiation Facility in Grenoble, France. They're calling it the EBS, which is, stands for the Extremely Brilliant Source, okay? And I don't even understand technically what the heck is going on here with this EBS. The bottom line is that it's, it's extremely brilliant and extremely powerful and provides extremely high resolution images using this non-destructive method. Um, they call it hierarchical phase contrast tomography, or HIP-CT. And you know, micro-CT has existed. You look online, you see micro-CT, you can image down to, or nano-CT even, but not like this. I mean, you guys ha have a look at these images. They take five uh, intact human organs, uh, brain, lung, heart, kidney, and spleen, and they just go bonkers resolution, deep. Um, and I mean, beautiful images. And, and what's really key here is they showing like side by side of actual H&E and then, you know, it's grayscale, but they pseudo color. So it looks like H&E and it's identical. Uh, I think it'd be, it'd be challenged to discern the difference between the two. And then they move on to show kind of practical applications. Um, one looking in the kidney, but what really jumped out to me and would probably made it, this is a nature method story. Um, but what brought it to that level, I think also, you know, in terms of clinical relevance is they looked at morphological anatomical regional changes in the tissue architecture and the lung 
from someone who died from COVID. So, and they showed really, really high fidelity of the genuine biopsy looking at the tissue versus, you know, what they were able to find with their hip CT. And this is really diagnostically useful stuff, uh, stuff that if, if we were able to non-destructively image, we might be able to track the course of disease and improve diagnosis. So look, no one's going over to the European synchrotron radiation facility to do their diagnosis and getting in this six giga EV machine, sure. But what I love about this is that I think it's one um, representative, I think, of the kind of improvement in diagnostic uh, you know, resolution that we're able to get on strictly an imaging scale. I think that that this technology, as it becomes more accessible, can be applied to these developmental organo organogenesis systems and organoids um, to see if we're able to, to drive development in ways that are faithful. Um, and just, you know, just super cool as an idea. I've been waiting for this for so long, for a, a way that where we can get out outside of the microscope and use the, this kind of non-destructive imaging. And this is, I think, I, I can imagine in decades to come maybe that we would able to do some real kind of Star Trek imaging on the molecular scale in a live human patient. And, and of course we can imagine how that's gonna revolutionize medicine. Yeah, that's exactly the point that I was gonna make. I mean, this is absolutely phenomenal and the resolution that you can get for some of these organs is, is tremendous, but really the next step is, can you do this live? you know, like a live ultra high resolution imaging in intact human organs at the cellular level. Uh, this is showing that you can still get those morphologies, those different structures that are intrinsic to different organs. And you can see them, you know, in a one-to-one -one way in comparison to H&E, for example. I looked at the heart, you know, I saw the individual uh, what is it, the coronary arteries right next to the myocytes. And you're, you're looking at that at such a high resolution and intact heart that in itself is tremendously beautiful. And of course the, the COVID application is great too, but yes, I agree with you. I think the next step is, can we do this live? And I'm sure we're going to get there at some point soon. Yeah, I think we're going to get there. And I think it's just, you need something like this to nucleate the idea like, okay, you could go to the synchrotron and make this happen, but I guarantee you, this is already in the works in terms of like AI and being able to assemble and increase the image resolution using these, you know, algorithmic approaches combined with light sheet and clearing, which is, you know, clearly destructive and whatnot. But it's just exciting because you can see that the interest is there. And, and with all the focus um, in stem cells, I think that it's not long before we see people applying really high resolution, non-destructive methods to image organoids. And I, I just can't wait to see how, how that's going to be applied. I think organoids would be easy in comparison to the real thing, right? Yeah. Organoids are just tiny little balls of tissue, little balls of cells, a few thousand cells big, but doing something like this and billions and even maybe trillions of cells in a larger body, that's, that's really impressive. Not poo-pooing organoids at all. We love organoids, but you know, this is a, it's a different type of scale. So moving on to a story that's going back into the stem cell side of things. It is talking about cancer stem cells. This is a cell metabolism paper. Um, cancer, some, cancer stem cells are, it's of course a somewhat controversial topic, but we're going to dive into it nonetheless here. The title of this paper is Fasting Mimicking Diet blocks triple negative breast cancer and cancer stem cell escape. 
Uh, first author here is Julia Salvadori, and last author is Walter Longo from USC, University of Southern California, who's actually done a decent amount of work on the impact of the metabolism on different downstream cancer phenotypes and how maybe fasting diets could also be able to alleviate some downstream cancer phenotypes. And that's exactly kind of what this paper is about. So we know about metastatic tumors and how they're always lethal due to like a primary and even acquired resistance to a therapy or cancer stem cell mediated repopulation. That's the whole idea, right? Unfortunately, cancers adapt to the therapy and eventually you're going to have some escape of these cancer cells happening. But what this showed here is that you can actually uh, have a fast mimicking diet, a fasting mimicking diet or FMD is what they call it, that actually activates certain starvation escape pathways in a triple negative breast cancer cells. And then by doing that, they actually, that fast mimicking diet uh, makes the cells more susceptible to being identified and targeted by the drugs. So it's almost like um, it, it's, it's an escape in a way, but it's almost like you're more easily able to identify these cells in the presence of this fasting mimicking diet, right? So in the cancer stem cells, this FMD fast mimicking diet, as you might expect, is lowering glucose dependent protein kinase signaling. So lowering glucose signaling, that's what a fasting diet does. And also it's producing certain stemness markers to actually reduce the overall cell number and increase ultimately survival in their mouse model. So that's cool. They're able to show that if you fast a mouse, perhaps in these triple negative breast cancers, which are pretty aggressive, uh, you can Im improve the, the overall survival. But uh, the other half of the paper, and I think part of the reason why this is a cell metabolism paper, is they actually looked at patients. And they looked at metastatic triple negative breast cancer patients with lower glycemia. And they saw that in those patients, they actually survive longer and, um, and they have a higher, uh, survive longer than the folks who have a higher baseline glycemia. Okay. Um, so it's bringing it back to the patients, which I obviously I'm a big fan of, and this fasting mimicking diet also prevents, as you might expect, hyperglycemia. If you're fasting, you're not going to raise your glucose levels too much, which is a good thing. And actually there's certain toxicities that are caused by cancer drugs that fasting can actually help prevent. Okay. So it's really showing that this fasting mimicking diet is, uh, has, a, has a bunch of beneficial effects on normal cancer, cancer stem cells, different cell types, and it's able to allow the rapid identification, actually targeting of certain escape cells, escape pathways. Um, and maybe this is something that could be more broadly applicable across the board, not just breast cancer, but other cancer cell types as well. This is a huge field these days, uh, you know, different forms of fasting, intermittent fasting, which has become all the rage. Certain people swear by it. They believe that it can help, you know, uh, longevity, lifespan, and in this case, perhaps even cancer survival. I've actually even tried intermittent fasting myself. I didn't really see too much of an effect, except I got kind of hungry. But it, some people do swear by it, and there's definite, definite scientific evidence that shows that certain fasting diets can uh, perhaps improve survival in certain cancers as well. Yeah, for the first thing I was going to say is I wonder... Um how this plays with other cancer types uh to your point there um because yeah i wonder if it's if it's specific you know intuitively that it makes sense to me the idea that you're like starving the cancer but then there's this like idea also of uh the uh 
Warburg hypothesis. And granted, listen, I'm no cancer specialist, but I thought the whole thing about cancer and why it's so tough to beat is because there's a shift in metabolism where the cancer kind of insulates itself from these more traditional, you know, you know, checks and balances on, you know, rogue cell proliferation. So I wonder how that squares with this. I don't know if they address that in the discussion, or maybe I'm just totally way off. Like I said, I'm not a cancer biologist. But the other thing that, that struck me right away, just in terms of the clinical relevance to this, is like, aren't cancer patients like kind of fasting already? I, I mean, there's a lot of weight loss just because mm -hmm. of zero appetite. So I wonder how, how you can kind of uh, control for that or normalize that uh, in the human patient population. So I, it's, it's just tough, I think, maybe to, to, to say how, how, um, how big an impact this is. One, because I don't know enough about the field, uh, but two, I think the, the line that they're drawing between the mouse and the clinical studies, although I haven't really looked that deeply into it, seems like there may be some alternate interpretations there, but hey, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I'm not a cancer guy myself. And I, I think, like you said, this is probably just one of many different variables in the context of cancer. Metabolism is one thing. And I actually didn't think about that. Yes, I would say cancer patients are being somewhat starved in terms of the, the during the course of the treatment, they're probably not eating as much. And the treatment itself induces a loss of appetite too. So it's kind of a, a feedback loop there. But you're right. I mean, a lot of the findings here are in mice and also in uh, cell line models as well. The cool thing is they did bring it back to some patients and showed that a lower glucose level in these certain patients leads to a longer survival for these cancer patients. But uh, you're right. I think there are other variables at play here. Yeah, again, agree. When you get it into the human patient population, it takes on a whole other degree of relevance, right? So uh, kudos to the group for that. Victor Longo, he's no stranger. You can add that feather to his cap amongst the others. Um, another guy who's got plenty of feathers, Lenzon. Uh, I'm going to tell a story that he, he, he told, really. I'm just going to paraphrase, I guess, his story uh, that recently came out in Science in Hematopoiesis. You know, it's Lenzon. I'm talking about the blood here. And he works in fish. And what we're talking about is uh, clonal hematopoiesis, right, which we, we've discussed uh, earlier on the show a few times. It's this idea that you get certain clonal populations in, in amongst the hematopoietic cohort in our bodies that are, are overrepresented relative to others. And the imbalance in the hematopoietic populations can arise from mutations, right, that enable like a competitive advantage in a certain population as, as we age. Um, or in the context of cancer treatment, oftentimes you'll get these rogue cells that are resistant to chemo. So this external stress will allow them to emerge. Um, or similarly, when you have transplantation, you can get these founder effects, you know, so certain clones will kind of get a foothold or be mobilized relative to others and then be di differentially represented. Um, and also, you know, the reason why we care about clonal hematopoiesis at all, right, is because uh, you get these recurrent mutations in multiple genes uh, among some DNMT3A, TAT2, ASXL1, um, that have all been associated with hematologic malignancies, right? You have increased risk um, when you have clonal hematopoiesis based on these mutations. Um, but here's the thing. We don't really know how that uh, these mutations uh, give that competitive advantage. You know, with certain mutations, it's like, let's say IGF receptor mutation in the spermatogonial stem cell compartment, maybe. 
perhaps, for example, you can see how those cells will grow more. But in the case of these genes, it's not really well understood. Um, and the reason why is because we're always looking at the, in this external system, ex vivo, or in the context of like transplantation, for example, we haven't looked at clonal competition in a native environment, or at least not a lot of people have looked. Enter the Zahn group, right? They're gonna apply their uh, repertoire of skills and tools. In this case, the zebra bow, which is a derivative of you know the rainbow. There's been a lot of bows, rainbow, et cetera. There's a zebra bow, which they, they've used before, so that's not brand new. But here, they combine the zebra bow with this other system, which they are calling Twister, uh, which stands for tissue editing with inducible stem cell tagging via recombination. Dr. Zahn, there's a lot of words in that uh, acronym there <laughs> that aren't credited. All right. You're forcing the acronym a little bit, I'll say. But I, I mean, you like to do the acronyms and that's good. I mean, there's a lot of people going to be twisting stuff up in the future. But the way they did applied it here, I thought was really nice, elegant, simple. Um, uh, and creative and led to, I think, a profound outcome. What they did is they, they used the twister and they introduced in the, in the rainbow different colors and then allowed these uh, fish to grow to adulthood. These were fish that had an intrinsic kind of uh, uh, tendency to undergo this clonal hematopoiesis under the pressure of these mutations. Um, and then they looked at the, the blood samples months later and because of the rainbow, they were able to select the clones, right? Um, they select the most dominant clones and they did single cell seek on those. And they showed that uh, there were pro-inflammatory genes in mature, that were enriched in mature myeloid cells of these clones, right? And then anti-inflammatory genes that were expressed in the progenitor of the mutant clone, right? And specifically here, they said they then experimentally uh, got rid of one copy of the NR4A1, which is this immunomodulatory transcription factor. And that abrogated the ability of this, they had this ASXL1 mutant clone that's enriched for these clonal hematopoietic events. And when they got rid of NR4A1, it didn't happen anymore. So the, the, the you know, conclusion there was that NR4A1 and this inflammatory axis is necessary uh, for this uh, clonal fitness of these mutant clones that emerge. Um, and the model there is that, and it's, this is kind of a neat model, I think, is that their derivative, I mean, their, their derivatives, the differentiated derivatives are creating a pro-inflammatory milieu. Um, but the progenitors, if they express these anti-inflammatory molecules, are able to protect against that and expand and maintain this kind of like uh, progenitor potential and, and proliferate. So yeah, I thought it was a, a really nice, elegant study in fish to try and assign some mechanism to uh, clonal hematopoiesis. My only criticism would be, I think on the back end, um, this was a science article, so high profile, I think a lot of other labs um, that didn't have the prominence of the Zahn lab would have had to do a little bit more uh, to demonstrate sufficiency. I think they show that NR4A1 is necessary, but they don't really, established enough, I think, as proxies of the inflammatory or getting rid of the inflammatory even to really close that loop. But still, nice study. Len, you, you've done it again. Uh, congratulations uh, to you and the group. Uh, a very nice piece of work. Yep. Another powerhouse study from a powerhouse lab over there in Boston. I do want to 
uh, bring it back to the imaging, kind of like what we talked about in the first paper in the roundup. Part of the reason why zebrafish are so awesome is because of the capacity of do, to do these amazing imaging applications. You're talking about Brainbow. And for the last 10 plus years, this has been such a workhorse of zebrafish. Uh, <clears throat> I remember even like close to a decade ago, reading a paper by Dr. Ken Poss, who was a, a guest on our show. And uh, they were actually using some version of Brainbow to track cardiac development the development of individual trabeculae cells of the trabeculae in the muscle of the heart. And here we are 10 years later, and we're still using some sort of application of brainbow imaging to track, you know, clonal hematopoiesis and the downstream impacts of that. So it just reflects how powerful that particular technology has been in the zebrafish field. It's, it's a one of a kind, this is transparent zebrafish. It's, it's, amazing for this particular ap application for lineage tracing and combined with uh, Brainbow technology, the, the sky's the limit, right? Yeah, I always love the Brainbow because it's it's like a left field idea. I don't know about left field, but it's so simple. It's in the red, blue, green thing. It always reminds me of the, you know, the old TV, the out of service line, the primary colors. It's just, it's beautiful. I think the way you can take uh, a simple system and, and and generate uh, a, a, such a robust uh, assay for tracking um, start to finish clonal populations in the brain. There's been all this really elegant mapping of, of axonal projections. It's really amazing stuff. So yeah, someone should get a prize for that whole Brainbow idea. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to happen at some point soon. Shout out to the zebrafish folks. And the last paper that we're going to talk about today is unfortunately not a zebrafish paper, but it's a good transition to our guest today, Dr. Christine Mummery, who's an amazing cardiac biologist. This is a paper actually coming from the Victor Chang Institute down under in Australia titled HIF-1-alpha suppresses Ross-induced proliferation of cardiac fibroblasts following myocardial infarction. This is a cell stem cell paper. First author is Vibo Janbandu, and last author is the one and only Richard Harvey, right? So we're talking about fibrosis, which is, of course, a major issue with myocardial infarction, heart attack. You get scarring that happens in the heart because of the activation and proliferation of cardiac fibroblasts, these cells that deposit you know, extracellular matrix everywhere and really cause a downstream impact on cardiac function a lot of times for the rest of your life. And fibrosis is, it's not something that's exclusive to the heart. Uh, it happens elsewhere too, but it's the famous example of how fibrosis can cause a detrimental downstream impact to a particular organ type, right? So what they're showing here is that cardiac fibroblasts and actually mesenchymal progenitors are more hypoxic than other cardiac populations and express even more hypoxia-inducible factor 1A, HIF-1-alpha, right? It's the famous gene that's responsible for detecting oxygen levels across the body, right? And what they did here is when they did a cardiac fibroblast-specific deletion of HIF-1-alpha, there was a, as you might expect, a decreased HIF-1-alpha target gene expression and actually increased mesenchymal progenitors and uninjured hearts and also increased cardiac fibroblast activation after an injury in, such as a myocardial infarction. So the idea is in these animals that are HIF-1-A negative, there's a hyperactivation of the cardiac fibroblasts, and there's even more and more scarring that's happening to the heart. 
Okay. And this cardiac fibroblast proliferation is associated with a higher amount of ROS, reactive oxygen species production. It's actually also occurring in the wild type mice that are treated with the uh, mitochondrial ROS generator. Okay. And the ultimate thought here is if, okay, in, in this setting of myocardial infarction, if there's an increase in ROS activity and ROS production, reactive oxygen species production, then perhaps simply you can just use an antioxidant to sequester the ROS levels and perhaps rescue some of these phenotypes associated with the HIF1-alpha uh, mice. And maybe maybe down the road, it's a, it's a way that you can reduce the overall fibrosis phenotypes, not just in the heart after an MI, but in other cell types and organ tissue types as well. So I think it's a pretty straightforward paper showing the impact of HIF1-alpha and oxygen on impacting um, you know, cardiac fibroblast proliferation, but maybe it has a lot of downstream applications too, since fibrosis is something that really happens across the body. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's everywhere, right? I mean, it's something that could address fibrosis would be a, a bit of a panacea, but that's, I guess for me, where I'm a bit thrown, um, the idea of HIF one alpha, I don't know that that's really druggable, but as a proxy, they're talking about using this like mitotempo, this mitochondrial targeted antioxidant. But when something's so, I mean, this is a high profile, right? And when something is so, um, I don't know, like revolutionary, the idea of antioxidants addressing the major killer, even mitigating the phenotype at all uh, is so big that I would have liked to see some support for that. Maybe, I don't know, I didn't read the article. Um, so maybe you'll tell me that they, they have something that's convincing, but I, I just, the idea that the leap to the idea of, okay, antioxidants for um, fibrotic disease could be the key. I, I want a little piece of evidence for that in a more clinical context, but maybe it's there. Was there anything there to that, to that end, to that point, Arun? Yeah, I, I think they do still need to do a lot of work. I mean, they they mention it in their limitations that there are quite a bit of limitations associated with this. I don't I don't think anybody is necessarily saying that you take antioxidants and it's going to reverse all your fibrotic phenotypes, right? That's too good to be true. But you know, they they say that limitations actually included the fact that they're not even directly measuring the amount of ROS. It's an indirect measurement of ROS, so that's one thing. And, uh, you know, even though they've identified certain signaling pathways like AKT and ERK that might be activating as mediators of this proliferative response in, in, this, um, in the system, there's likely to be a ton of other pathway in, involved. And certainly the, the grand criticism here is this is a mouse model. They're only exclusively looking at mouse data. They have no idea about the this particular mechanism, this particular impact uh, of, of HIF1 alpha function in cardiac fibroblasts and human hearts, right? So you're absolutely right. You know, it's it's a basic science study, but hey, you know, we're we're still learning something new here. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound like a jerk there. I'm, I'm it's like, yeah, Dr. Harvey, call me when you've solved heart disease. No, I, this is big. So kudos, but I just I would left me wanting more. Um, maybe we can have some more. We got the interview coming right up. We could talk to Miss Dr. Mummery about that. Uh, but before we get to that, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Did you know that you can model arrhythmias in cardiomyocytes derived from human pluripotent stem cells? Watch Stem Cells On Demand webinar 
to learn how patient-derived and gene-edited HPSC lines can be used to model cardiac disease in vitro. Visit www.stemcell.com slash cardio dash webinar. All right, everybody, we have a very special guest on the show for this episode, ex-president of the ISSCR and former guest on the show for episode 37, a really entertaining one. I would check that out before you get to this, uh, if you can. Uh, Dr. Christine Mummery, who is professor of developmental biology and head of the IPS hotel and training facility. We'll have to hear more about that at the Leiden University Medical Center. Um, as I said, she's professor of developmental biology and pioneered studies on cardiomyocytes from human embryonic stem cells, was among the first to inject them into mouse hearts after myocardial infarction. Although her current research has pressed on from that, concerns modeling cardiovascular disease using stem cells from patients and developing organ-on-chip models of multiple organs for safety pharmacology and potential disease modeling and identifying drug targets. Dr. Mummery, thank you so much for joining us for the show. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Marmy, for, for being here. It's, it's really an honor. And uh, you're, of course, one of our field's experts on all things stem cell cardiomyocytes. And you've been working on their in vitro and in vivo applications for many years now. And as a fellow IPS cardiomyocyte biologist, I've always admired the rigorous studies and the amazing work that's been coming out of your lab. But as we know, these cells are far from perfect. So I wanted to start off with a, an IPS cardiomyocyte specific question. Um, and so given their immaturity, right, everybody harps on these, the immaturity of these cells, their electrophysiological, metabolic, functional immaturity. What do you think about the next steps in terms of improving these cells as a model system? Certainly no model is perfect, but in spite of these limitations, what can we do to actually make them better? And still, what do you think is the greatest victory we've had with these cells so far? Is it the in vitro modeling? Is it the perhaps improved maturation over the last couple of years, their entry into clinical trials? So tell us about IPS and how we, they can make them better. Yeah, so, so you're quite right that all uh, differentiated derivatives of IPS cells are immature. So they, they're not much further than 16 weeks of human gestation. So it's been a real challenge thinking about how we could, could solve this problem. And we thought a few years ago um, that one way to go might be to make them grow in 3D and introduce the stromal cells. Uh, of the, the organ. So of course we started with cardiomyocytes and that actually rem worked remarkably well. We were really, really pleased to see all of the things you mentioned, like the structure, the metabolism, the electrophysiology become mature. So it was, it was really cool. And um, so when you look at the literature, you find some claims, oh, I have a mature cell, but they only look at one feature. We wanted to look at all four aspects of maturity. And not only that, to recapitulate some of the drug responses you might see in an adult heart. And we've done that as well. So, so that's been, I think, of the last couple of years, uh, one of our major contributions to the field. Of course, a lot of people do it now. Uh, many people are looking now at the downstream targets and things like that. But I still remember if people would ask what our Eureka moment was, um, that was actually... It, uh, on the 14th of February uh, 20, uh, 2000, and that was Valentine's Day, and that's when we saw, saw our first beating heart cells from, in this case, embryonic stem cells. 
that was so incredibly cool to see these beating heart cells um, that I've never forgotten that moment. And, uh, you know, so at that moment, we started doing electrophysiology because that's my background in biophysics. And we could do an incredible lot with them just as they were. So all the ion channels are there, otherwise, or most of them, otherwise they wouldn't beat. So we can do a lot um, looking at the effect of drugs and disease on ion channels. And I think that's the reason, let's say, ion channel diseases, where there's mutations in ion channel genes, are, have been the most popular because uh, we can study them without doing maturation. But when we want to take a step further to look at postnatal uh, post diseases or even adult diseases, that's when we get stuck. And um, from what we found out about the heart, I think using uh, organ-specific stromal cells in 3D may be the way to go for other organs. But we don't know that yet, but people are working on it. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I mentioned it. You, uh, you've been on the show before, and here we are almost 200 episodes later. It's almost seven years uh, since you were on. And so, of course, I went back and re-listened to your interview, didn't want to retread anything. Um, and I should say, again, it, it's a really entertaining introduction on how you found your way from biophysics to stem cell biology. So I would encourage our listeners to check that out. Um, also, some nice stories, just like your Eureka moment there, how, how poetic on a Valentine's Day. A lot more there. Episode 37, guys, go get it. Um, but in addition to that, I was impressed with the way you seem to have a bead on the way that the field was trending and you were kind of tracking your lab's research focused to capitalize that. Specifically, you were talking about how everyone had up to that point has been focused on engraftment and dealing with myocardial infarction. And, and you were realizing and what a, what a challenge that was and, and not pivoting necessarily, but complementing the research focus in your lab to incorporate more of the disease modeling. So seeing that you have, you know, ultimately fallen that track seemed to be a bit of a scientific Nostradamus of sorts. Um, I have to ask, what are you excited about for the next decade or so in your lab? And generally, um, now that you've seen it all as ISSCR president, um, you probably have an even better beat on what's coming. Um, and, and are there any trends? This is interesting to me. Are there any trends uh, that you were excited about, that you have been excited about, that kind of just went away or fell flat. You know, people don't talk about enough about the the, the promising technologies that we just move move on from. So I'd like to ask your your insight on that. Yeah. So so I I love technology. So um, when I would let's say looks back at the last ISSCR meeting, where the sessions that were really crowded are the ones that combine technology with stem cells. So it's not about um, how do we get them, where do they come from, or even now how we differentiate them. You know, that, that's almost a done deal, but it's all about what you can do with them. And that is really exciting. So even though I, I chicken, um, it was more, it was, that was because I saw a heart that was taken out of a patient that had a transplant. And I thought, wow, we're never gonna solve this by injecting cardiomyocytes. Now there are people who think differently and are doing extremely well in that area, but I chickened out. But when I see what's happening for the eye, for Parkinson, the brain, for diabetes with the pancreas cells, I think this is really going to happen in selected diseases. So that's extremely cool. And I think we're just sort of beginning to sort of lift the veil about what's possible. 
But I also think um, understanding human diseases is, is also incredibly cool. When, I, when you think what the cell types you can uh, derive now, it's, it's really so much more than we used to be able to do. So it's not just about beating cardiomyocytes. We can derive all cells of the heart. We can look at the brain and we can derive all of the substrate types of neurons or many of them. Um, and that incredibly cool because we know which combinations of cells we might have to use to model disease because disease is often a dialogue. And if you just have one cell there, you know, it might not do anything. And, and that's what some of our recent researchers told us, actually, a defective fibroblast in the heart can cause an arrhythmia when there's nothing at all wrong with the cardiomyocytes. So that's really important. And that's with more diseases. We don't know who is the victim and who's the culprit. Think of ALS. We don't know who's killing the neurons. Are they dying by themselves or is there some other cell killing them? Uh, and I think those are the opportunities to really understand the mechanisms underlying human disease. And it's important to remember that one of the major triggers of most disease is actually the immune cells, inflammation. Most people are fine until they get some kind of infection or it's part of almost every kind of disease is the immune system. And now we can make it the immune cells, nearly all of them, not that efficiently, but it's getting better. We can make them isogenically from our disease model. So when we put these isogenic, maybe CAR Ts even, or just uh, macrophages or T cells, B cells, uh, into these models, we can actually mimic the, the inflammation triggers that we've not been able to do before, except with a primary cell and then it gets complicated because you have, you know, they're not isogenic. Mm. So I think we're just at the beginning of what we can do. And the, I think the short-term outcomes can be in repurposing drugs. So drugs already on the market or off patent can be fed back into these disease models if we understand which uh, signaling pathways we, we need to modulate. I mean, there are, I mean, there are basically, if I talk about very simplistically, only about 20 different signaling pathways. Of course, there's thousands of ligands and many, many proteins, but they all funnel through into just a relatively small number of signaling pathways. Um, and that's where the power of single cell uh, genomics, proteomics, whatever is coming in. It's helping us identify which pathways are affected. Mm. Um, and then we can, from some of these drug libraries, select which drugs might um, benefit the patient. And by coupling, let's say, disease markers you have in a patient with disease markers, the same disease markers in your model, you may be able to catch some of these very early diseases, diseases in a very early stage, give the drug, prevents the pathology developing. Because one of the hardest things is once a tissue is damaged, trying to fix it. That's when you get into the transplantation. It's really, really hard. But if you have the early stage and you say, okay, if this protein's there, it's damaging the cells, or this protein's absent, the cells are being damaged. If you can fix that at an early stage, you may prolong the period of relative health. So I'm still really excited about personalized models, although we, we prefer these days to call it precision medicine rather than personalized because of the feasibility. Um, but just imagine the options for looking at many, many different ethnic backgrounds. 
um, there are differences in disease, how they manifest in different populations, but we really can't get a grip on them. And now we have all these opportunities um, and te technology is coming there. We need robots to do this. We can't have thousands of technicians or research assistants pipetting away. And that's when the, we need the engineers uh, to make the robotics. Um, we need the reagents. Uh, we need the readouts. And that's again where we need maybe electrical engineers. We need nanobiologists. We need to have this really multidisciplinary to be able to do it high throughput, highly accurately, and in a highly standardized way. So uh, I, you know, I sort of sometimes wish I was at the beginning of my career rather than the towards the end of it. You could say in the twilight, um, because there's so many opportunities um, to actually solve real problems and get drugs to patients or gene therapies. So you know, as we as you may know. Not all genes are the same in mice and, and humans, very few are. Um, and if we can, you know, find gene therapies uh, based on our models, really cool. Yeah, it's definitely a very exciting time to be a, a new stem cell biologist in part because of all these amazing technologies that are just permeating our field. And I want to take a step back and actually mention that my eureka moment is the same as yours, seeing these cells actually contract in a dish for the first time. I'd like to think this is probably the reason or one of the main reasons why I all, you know, stem cell cardiomyocyte biologists got into the field because not a whole lot of cell types beat, right? So there's that visual beauty in seeing these things actually contract in a dish, sometimes with your naked eye. So uh, totally agree with you there. But you talked about some of these amazing technologies and how a lot of these model systems have started to shift towards looking at multiple cell lineages at the same time. So not only the contracting cardiomyocytes, which we all know and love, but also the endothelial cells, the fibroblasts, all the other cell types that are found in the heart and also you know, of other tissue types as well. And actually your lab has taken quite an interest in these multi-lineage model systems of cardiovascular development in particular, using like spheroids, organoids, and even some organ chip technologies to, to grow multiple cardiac cell types in a single platform, right? I remember reading a great paper by your former grad student, Elisa Giacomelli, on how co-culturing cardiomyocytes with cardiac fibroblasts can actually enhance their maturation in these cardiac microtissues. So do you think that the days of cardiomyocyte monoculture, where these cells are only grown by themselves, should be a thing of the past? Or should we all start shifting towards using these multi-lineage model systems where like Core, like uh, organoids and microtissues where multiple cell types are working together? Or are there still certain advantages of using monoculture in our cell culture systems? Yeah, so uh, as with all of these questions, there's never a, a yes or no answer. It's always somewhere in between. So if, if we were looking, uh, let's say, a cardiotox, um, where you're specifically looking at effects on certain ion channels that cause sudden cardiac death, then uh, using mono, uh, monocultures in monolayer is not a problem. And it's in fact what the FDA wants uh, many people to do now. In fact, they're, they're accepting these as part of, of uh, drug dossiers as they move towards uh, the clinic, is they, they want these multi-ion channel models uh, to predict uh, whether the action potential of the cells alters. Now they're absolutely fine for this purpose. And um, if we, uh, you always want to keep a, a model as simple as possible. 
and, and not make it more complex than necessary. So we're beginning to understand which pathways are activated uh, in the cardiomyocytes by the multicell type culture. So we're following that up. So it's quite possible that very soon we'll know all the genes that are upregulated during maturation. We can find other ways of activating them and we will be able to get fairly mature uh, cardiomyocytes in monocultures. So of course we would use that. Um, but in some cases, if it's very important to have this dialogue, one cell is affecting another, this is uh, where you will need multi-cell type models of, of any uh, particular organ. And um, the heart is one, but it could be uh, many others. So you need this, uh, this dialogue. Um, so one of the things to distinguish is you have pre-differentiated cells that you put together as a micro tissue, and you have a sort of organoid type development. Now in the one case, uh, you're ready to go. So the advantage of it is you can freeze down the cells, thaw them a day later, you can just put them together and you have these cell-cell interactions. If you want to study development, you can't use these pre-differentiated cells. What you need to do is to make an organoid. So people ask me, um, how do you feel about cardioids, which uh, Sasha Mengen uh, developed? I think they're so cool because there you can study developmental defects, which I can't. But on the other hand, he doesn't get the degree of maturation and the simplicity of dialogue between just a few cells that, that we get. So I think they're entirely complementary and it's true for any organ. So if you take the intestinal organoids or the assembloids of brain, all kinds of things, each model has its own particular application. Hmm. Yes, and we're all, I mean, there's basic knowledge here, but you said it earlier. I mean, the real end game here is, is cures and treatments. And this is a very exciting time to be a scientist at the beginning of your career, at the end of your career. It's just an exciting time to be in the game, if you ask me. Um, because there's a lot of, I guess, the hope maybe uh, becoming reality. I, I just want to talk about the timeline, I guess. It's so looking specifically just at uh, stem cells, pluripotent stem cells. And this may actually also apply generally in the sciences writ large. Um, but let's just talk about stem cells. The pace of advance has been, you know, accelerating, it seems, with the increased interest. Uh, mouse ESL derivation was in 1981. Then human, it took almost two decades before we got in human. Uh, 98, Jamie Thompson, and then less than a decade later, a decade feverishly spent trying to find alternative sources for pluripotent stem cells, Yamanaka comes with iPS cells. And now less than a decade, well, uh, more than a decade after that, but around uh, equivalent amount of time later, we're just, you know, surrounded by all this technology, organoids, blastoids, cardioids, you said it, we got all the ex vivo embryo culture from like even early gastrula stages to full organogenesis, crazy. Xenotransplanted pig organs, you know, this is all just in the last year. So it seems like the work's never been more popular, never been better funded. And it seems, and it really feels, uh, as you alluded to, that we're really close to capitalizing on the quote unquote regenerative medicine that I think the, the real cheerleaders have been promising and predicting since very, very early days. So you said that we're lifting the veil 
And, and I think I take that to mean we're really close to actually cells in people, right? That's like the original promise. As much as it's been made of disease modeling, all the amazing other things that, that can be gleaned and, and gained um, from, from stem cells and model systems, the real promise with cells in people, are we that close? Oh, absolutely. So that was the problem we as a field had to deal with um, was actually the, the, you know, the US didn't want anybody to use pluripotent stem cells. That was the bottom line. And the only, re only way to win over people, opponents, or even the legislation that would allow it was to promise that we were going to make, uh, you know, people with spinal cord lesions walk. Uh, Superman would get up out of his wheelchair. Mm. Um, Michael J. Fox would, Parkinson would be cured. And these very prominent people helped us in this hype, but we were immediately concerned about overpromising, And we did, for sure. And that was the kind of disillusion that met the field. So as scientists are, they, they find other things to do with whatever they found. So that's when we got to disease modeling and it got really exciting. But the development of cell therapies has had a, a, a take, taken a long time. Um, and it was slightly diverted by, you could say, ethical issues. So because it was based on embryonic stem cells, there was a group of people who, who started working on what we call they called mesenchymal stromal cells or mesenchymal stem cells, even worse. And this dominated the field, took away valuable resources. And I'm talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, euros, whatever they are, away from basic, this, the real basic research into something that was a pie in the sky. So I'm saying it very black and white now, but it took away a lot of research, resources. And it made the, the public even patients think there were other ways to cures. So we got, you know, diverted. Um, and there were these, you know, two, two fields uh, uh, fighting against each other. And uh, we didn't really make much progress. But in the bottom line is those cells don't really work. It's only the Malafida clinics that are now offering them. Still they're there, still people pay good money, hard-earned money to go to these clinics for no cure. But we're now beginning to focus on the real cells of interest and the real cells of interest, are the ones that replace those that are lost by damage, injury or disease. So we can make cardiomyocytes now. There was no way an MSC was going to, by magic, turn into a cardiomyocytes. It's like turning lead into gold. We know it's not possible. Um, and the same is true of neurons. We can really make neurons now. And it was more subtle than simply making neurons. We had to make the right type of neurons. We had to make the dopaminergic producing neurons and even the right subtype of those. So that was years and years, let's say in people like Malin Palmer's or Lauren Studer's group, years and years of basic developmental biology figuring this out. And now Lauren Studer's lab with uh, Vivian Tabar is transplanting these neurons into patients. The same is true in Japan, based on IPS cells. So we really are transplanting them. Um, Doug Melton's just transplanted pancreas cells from, uh, from pluripotent stem cells into a diabetic patient. Um, there are more, there are at least 70 or 80 patients already treated for macular degeneration. Hmm. 
So it really is happening. And each step that's made, we learn more about how to make the cells safe, GMP, um, do we need scaffolds? What's the immune response? All these kinds of things. And it's a sort of uh, accumulation of knowledge in the field, you could say. We're out there in the field trying to understand how this works. So the low hanging fruit, despite the difficulty anyway, is Parkinson's disease. One cell type affected. Pancreas um, for diabetes, one cell type needs replacing. Macular degeneration, RPE cells need replacing. So these are the one cell types. But we also promise things like spinal cord injury and stroke. So they're way down the line. Too many cell types damaged, too complex, very, very hard to fix. But we learn from each step towards the clinic. Um, we learn about how we can move forward. And I think, you know, things not yet on the agenda, but quite possible might be hearing, making hair cells. That could be benefit elderly people enormously. Instead of having a hearing aid, you put get in a new transplant of hair cells. Why not? Easy to access. And these are, I think, the new areas, defining simple problems of transplantation. And that's where you need younger people to think, what could I do? Do I understand this disease? And could I make those cells? And that's a really exciting area to be in. It all comes back to the basic science and really figuring out the, the right differentiation processes to actually make a cell of interest. And of course, science takes time. And here we are years down the road. And we have, for a number of these cell types, defined protocols to make them. And with defined protocols and defined purification processes, you can ultimately use them for these clinical applications that we're all going for, right? And so, you know, shifting gears from your hat as a scientist to your hat as a president, a president of the ISCCR, which you were in 2020, which is a, it was a challenging year for the greater world, of course. We've talked a lot about how biomedical research has adjusted to the realities of the pandemic, moving seminars virtually, for example. And as somebody who is actually in charge of making those tough decisions about canceling conferences, restructuring events, all in response to the pandemic, what do you think is your biggest takeaway with how ISCR and the stem cell field actually responded to the pandemic? What are you the most proud of and what do you think we could have done better? Yeah, so, so um, I think we, we think probably the days of big conferences may have passed. Maybe they haven't. Uh, people do love to go to, to conferences, to meet people, to network. And I think, of course, people will continue, but we have to deal with the situation as it is. And actually, I wasn't president when the first uh, ISSCI annual meeting went virtual. That was Deepak Srivastava. And he had a huge challenge um, because it ha had to happen. You know, the pandemic started really in March 2020 and June 2020 was when the, the meeting was planned. So they went virtual really quickly. And the staff of ISSCR did an amazing job in trying to recreate the conference feeling online. It wasn't perfect technically, but it worked pretty well. You had breakout rooms and so, so but the, the platforms themselves were completely on overload. So the, the IT people were completely stretched. They could, couldn't uh, manage all the huge amount of business. The second time, when I was president in 2021 for the 2021 meeting, it went a lot better because we found a platform which could do what we wanted, but not too much. And uh, that 
I think that worked really well. Now, one of the crucial decisions we had to make was, do we do pre-recording or do we do it live? And we had a lot of discussion about that. And we decided we preferred to do it live with the technical errors it uh, might entail, simply to give people the feeling it was real. Um, because there's not, nothing worse than sort of sitting in front of your screen feeling I'm just watching a TV program. And the sort of, um, you know, the anticipation that something might go wrong or somebody's not connection was not good or they uh, might, you know, something might happen unexpectedly, kept it sort of, kept us tense, kept us on our toes. And we, we really enjoyed it. So only a few were pre-recorded. They were perhaps more professional, but uh, it was fun. Um, and we had a new format. So we had two parallel sessions and we made it into themes. So you could actually follow a particular theme rather than you had a feeling that it was in a, a set of smaller meetings within a big meeting. And we, we did that because we'd imagined when we made this plan that it would be live. And I don't know whether you've ever been to an ISSER conference, but you need basically need your running shoes on to go from one session to the other across a huge conference hall uh, to get to the speaker you want to hear uh, in, a, in a hall that's, you know, like half a kilometre away, if you ask me. Um, so we wanted to change that, that you actually stayed for the whole meeting in a particular area of the, concert, of the conference centre. You'd have your coffee together and two similar themes would be in parallel and you'd meet all up for the plenary sessions, but your your parallel sessions would, as we, we call them pods or what kind of whatever you like to call them, they would all be together. Um, and so we're actually looking forward to 2022, where we hope it will it will be a hybrid meeting, but we hope it will be a lot of live things to put this into practice so that people won't have to have their running shoes on continually, but can actually relax and talk to people in between. Yeah, I, I for one thought that you did a great job. All, everybody did a really fantastic job and I want to congratulate you. And, and, and for me, what really made it a success is that while I was in the conference, you know, there's certain experiences where you have a proxy and you're experiencing the proxy and all you're noticing is what's missing from the original article. And this, I didn't have that. I, I noticed uh, on the contrary, all the nuance and all the added things that were like, oh, this, this should be nice to have uh, for all conferences. So I, I really think while it was a pain and a struggle um, and yeah, the growing pains in particular, I mean, I don't wanna uh, to, to downplay how aggravating and the tension involved with all the speaker cutoffs, but clearly some, some challenges, but I, I thought you did a great job. I mean, I will say, that my general experience is that the, the lack of all the in-person events really drove home how uh, relevant the, the person, personal relationships um, and not really just like interpersonal, having fun with and meeting colleagues from across the country, but just like the, the importance of notoriety in science. I mean, both for, for, for good and bad. Um, just, you know, everybody knows this from their experience before they're a big deal in science. You go to the conference and you're observing all these casual impromptu gatherings, but they're of these really big deal scientists, you know, luminaries outside of meeting rooms, you know, lens on, carousing, holding court and a group of tra trainees. You got Shaheen, my former mentor, 
just you know quietly eviscerating some concept while Elaine Fuchs looks on bemused and completely unmoved. <laughs> but like the, these, this the idea of where you're walking around, you're like, ah, oh, I would like to be that one day. Oh, I long for, you know, there's a little bit of, of, of you know, you're starstruck, right? I don't know another way to say it. I mean, it's a really small <laughs> orbit, right? Science um, very rarely interacts with real fame, you know, with Nobel prizes and big news stories. But science fame in the science sphere, it's very real. And it has a definite influence on the process, I think, at, at every level, um, almost every level, at least. So as a, you know, I'm a, you know it, there's no false modesty here. You're famous, Christine. I can't believe I'm calling you by your first name. You're a famous <laughs> scientist. Can you speak to the cost benefit of notoriety generally? I mean, we all know it's great to be famous, but particularly like the, the, the cost there. Um, is there any ways, you know, generally, I'd say for the less famous, there's certainly a cost, right? Um, the rich get richer idea. But is there a way also that the notoriety, your personal notoriety, you think interferes with your ability to do your best work, maybe? Well, I don't think so. Um, I, I think it's always um, a, a challenge uh, to, to keep your feet on the ground in many ways. I mean, most um, senior scientists will say, you do miss the days where you actually spent time in the lab, but the benefits are you get to brainstorm a lot with young people. And, and that's the bit I love and with the, the bits um, I miss when we zoom. So, you know, we've been not allowed into the lab for quite a long time if you're not actually holding a pipette. And I thought I might go back and hold a pipette just to be back in the lab um, because it's no fun, you know, guiding science from a distance. So now we can go back in the lab for better or worse, it's so much more fun and the students are much more happy. Um, and, you know, we have small groups of people thinking, you know, how can we put this paper together or what's the next experiments or why did we miss this? Uh, I think every senior scientist loves these moments um, and you do get them at meetings as well. Uh, so, you, you know, you come across small groups of scientists and, and they'll come to you and they say, come and look at my poster. And then, sometimes a real discussion will ensue and you know a year later this person says yeah I've now got my PhD I want to come and do a postdoc in your lab so that's how you mostly pick pick up postdocs is hey yeah I met you I remember your poster so you miss all of that um, and so I, I think it's it's great fun the one of the advantage actually of online meetings is that people dare to put a question in the Q&A whereas they would never dare stand up next to a microphone. Hmm. Um, and that is really you know, one of the relatively small benefits of being online. But uh, I think the things we miss, uh, you know, are things like Lenson's lunch. Um, <laughs> everybody misses Lenson's lunch. Uh, uh, they're just so, uh, you know, he has such fun doing it. He wouldn't do it if he didn't enjoy it. Um, and the way you describe the particular people you mentioned, we know all that, you know, that some people are very dry, some people are, have zero humour, some have a low, only humour, <laughs> so it's a real mixture. But nevertheless, at any, any stage of your career, um, the, 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 these meetings do make you nervous to speak at. And I, I'll just be very candid here, that there are some people, if they're sitting in the front row at ISSER and I'm supposed to speak, they make me so nervous 
Mm. And one of them is Gordon Keller, exactly in the same area, but always three papers in advance of me. And if he's sitting there watching like this, I feel so incredibly nervous. Mm. Um, and uh, my colleague in the Netherlands, Hans Klevers, because he's incredibly smart. And I think, you know, am I saying something stupid here or not? <laughs> because he, you know, he, he's a medic as well, and I'm not, I'm a physicist. So I could equally make, say something completely stupid about a disease and say, what is what's she talking about? So whatever stage of your career you're in, um, you need nervousness to concentrate. If you blase, it'll go completely wrong. But on the other hand, um, shouldn't think that because people say, oh, you've made it or whatever, um, it doesn't mean to say you're not nervous sometimes. Um, and, you know, you go back to when you were like a 25 year old and used to go red from ear to ear if you had to speak at a meeting and didn't sleep the night before. You know, those are still like it was yesterday. So, you know, please don't change that much. I must say that's wonderful to hear from you. I'm sure our trainees will appreciate that, too. And I just I want to say the late, great uh, Orla Mishka told me something that I carry with me and try and, and repeat to everybody about giving a talk where we, I was junior, junior, postdoc invited to some conference in Vegas. It was a great time. You and I had a blast. He was a very generous guy. Um, but in the in the speaking uh, session, I was clearly super nervous. Um, and I we got to talk and I said, how, you know, at this point, you're you must never be nervous at thing. I can't wait. I've given 100 of these talks. And he said, if you're not, you know, his I can't impersonate his voice. I won't even try. But he said, if you're not nervous, you don't care. And I just thought that was such a, a, a incisive point. And I, I now every time I'm nervous in a talk, I'm like, great, let's go. I care about this. And it's important to hear you say that you're still afraid to sound dumb. Uh, at this august stage in your career is is such a it's such a gift thank you for sharing that arun i will cede the floor to you no i i completely agree thank you for sharing that vulnerability i think our trainees will really appreciate that it doesn't matter how senior of a scientist you are or you can be you can still become nervous and become scared in front of these big presentations it's just human nature, right? And so perhaps that nervousness, that fear helps you focus a little bit more, which is not a bad thing. Um, so shifting gears a little bit from, you know, presenting and presenting at ISCR and your duties at ISCR, I wanted to talk a little bit about where you are, and in particular, Leiden, Leiden University Medical Center, which is in the Netherlands. It's uh, where you've been since the mid-2000s, and you've actually helped establish LUMC as really a powerhouse in the stem cell research field. And we love asking folks kind of what drew them to their current institution, because in a lot of ways, I think an institution that a PI decides to work at gives us some insights into what they value scientifically and even personally as well. Some of those values are shared. So tell us about LUMC and what's actually kept you there all these years. Yeah, so so people don't really understand my move there at all, particularly in the Netherlands, because I was um, for a very long time at the Hubrecht Institute, huh? which is one of the best institutes in the world. It wasn't quite the best institute in the world then, but it, it was definitely on, on, the, on the map, let's put it that way. Um, and I was kind of feeling uh, I needed to reflect a little bit. Did I want to spend the rest of my career there or did I want to move? So I went and did a sabbatical uh, at the Radcliffe Institute in, in Boston. And I was uh, working with um, Kit Parker, who's a, a bioengineer, and he taught me microcontact printing of cardiomyocytes. Mm. And Adam Feinberg was the postdoc who taught me. 
I was working with Ken Chen in, in his lab and several of his postdocs and was also interacting with uh, Doug Melton. And I found these, all three of them, inspiring at this time, talking about 2007. Um, when I came back, it was the time iPS cells were just discovered. And, and of course, Boston had set up uh, human embryonic stem cells to work, the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, to work outside the, the uh, presidential law, you could say, no NIH funding. And they, at uh, this point, also had a, a crisis. Are we going to stick with the human embryonic stem cells or are we going to embrace iPS cells? So all the big chiefs in Boston, and I'm really talking about big names, decided to embrace iPS cells. And they were really quick. They got together. So that's the funny thing about Boston. Everybody's rival most of the time, but when there's a real problem from the outside, big chiefs get together and they make a plan. This is what they did. Um, and I was lucky enough to be in touch with, with George uh, Daly at the time. He made among the first iPS cells and shared all the reagents with me. So when I went back to the Netherlands, I've got the reagents to make iPS cells in my lab. So this is kind of cool. Um, so what did I want to make iPS cells of? It was patients. And the Hubert lab doesn't have any patients at all. It's basic, basic research. So I thought, this is going to be problematic if I stay here. So I um, called a couple of the medical schools and Leiden was one of the smallest uh, and probably the least appropriate, but I really liked the people there. And I thought, uh, are you going to be um, a small fish in a big pool or a slightly bigger fish in a smaller pool? And I decided for the last one because the interaction with the clinicians was very, very close and very easy. So I went there and that uh, was in 2008, became department head in 2009 and stayed there ever since, basically. So that's, that was the reason to go really to make uh, all the research I've done all those years mean something in the patient con context. So if you would have asked me what one of your questions might have been, what would you have wanted to be if you hadn't been a research scientist? Actually, what I wanted to be basically was a doctor. And why didn't I become a doctor? Because my father wanted me to become a doctor. And at 18, you think, if my father wants me to become X, I'm going to be Y. So I went and studied physics. Mm. Um, and he thought, that's a ridiculous subject for a, a girl. But I did it anyway. So, um, so going to a medical school was actually sort of half realizing an ambition that I never realized in the sort of conventional way. And it's been fun. I've learned an incredible lot from the cardiologists. Yes, well, you've certainly taught the world's cardiologists a lot as well. So it's, a, it's an even share there. Um, and you've shared a lot with us and uh, we're very grateful. We're just gonna ask for a couple more science peripheral questions before we end the interview. Uh, first, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given either professional or not? Um, professional and, and uh, outside, one of the best pieces of advice was, um, Christine, you have to realize at some point you can't do everything perfectly. So I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. And this person said, you just have to decide what you need to do perfectly and which things don't matter. And that was uh, an incredibly good piece of advice because it uh, made me kind of do the good things better and the things that didn't matter enough. 
uh, and that gives you a lot more time. So uh, I think that was that's good advice from everybody. Actually, it's about setting priorities um, and which things do you need to do uh, and which things don't you need to do. And the other bit was uh, somebody said to me once, um, better decline up front than disappoint later. Mm. So if somebody says, could you do this by that and that date? Think about it. And if you can't, you know you're not going to be able to make the date, say, I'm sorry, it doesn't fit. And mostly they say, fully understand, we'll find somebody else. Perfect. But if you say you've done, you do it and you run a week late, uh, then you get a bad reputation. They say they never deliver on time. Uh, so you, you better be honest with yourself. Does it really fit or not? So those are perhaps two bits of advice I think anybody can use. I'm not sure it's professional or non-professional, but both. Oh, that's great life advice. Although in my own case, I would amend the first to be, you can't do everything satisfactorily. I'm not trying to be perfect, Christine. Um, second Sorry, question. Other, you gave us two answers there, but we're still going to ask you one more, I'm afraid. Um, final question. Uh, what is the biggest misconception about science? that you would like to resolve right here, right now? Um, in science, uh, that, um, that there's a solution to everything. Uh, so um, I think for some things, I, I think that the, the lead to gold is a good example. Um, sometimes the answer is simply no. And the patients expect science to solve everything. And if they go hunting on the internet enough, they will find it, but it's not true. And at some point there is no solution and there never will be to some things, but that's, I think that's um, something people should realize about science. We, we might not ever be able to solve everything. I think, um, yeah, that's probably, uh, probably a slightly pessimistic way of looking at science, um, but even doing sufficient research to recognize there is no solution it's also good. Right. It's not a, a negative result, right? If you've asked all the questions and find something to be unknowable. Um, I mean, that's, that's nature, right? And that's biology and physics and everything. So uh, I think maybe it is a bit, I wouldn't say dark uh, or even pessimistic. I think it's an important lesson from a scientist who has asked enough questions to realize that some things are unknowable. And another uh, gem of advice to share with our audience amongst all of the other things you've shared. Thank you so much, Dr. Mummery. This has been a, a really fun and fine chat. And uh, we appreciate all you do, not just in your science, but also, you know, as an advocate for stem cells and as a leader, as president of these, you know, institutions, International Stem Cell, Society for Stem Cell Research, et cetera. Uh, keep on doing what you're doing. Ain't no twilight that I see in your career. You're still on the rise. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. It's been a real pleasure. All right, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com where you can get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thank you guys so much for joining us for this episode with the illustrious ex 
president of the ISSCR, Christine Mummery. Really nice chatting with her and can't wait to see what she has on deck scientifically. Probably won't have to wait long. You definitely won't have to wait longer than two weeks to hear from us again. We'll have another episode for you then. Tune in. Tune in.